Since launching Your London Legacy back in 2018, I've met some pretty flamboyant characters, and none more so than this week's wonderful guest, Wayne Kirvin, better known as Wayne from Buckhurst Hill. A childhood friend of none other than Mark Bolan, Wayne is a well-known modernist and has been part of the London fashion scene for well over 50 years, and there's not much he doesn't know about the London subculture during that period. From the days of the modernists to Hackney in the 50s, Soho mods in the early 60s, and West Coast psychedelic folk blues in the mid-60s, Wayne's been there, seen it, he's done it all. Clothes and music have always been his passion, and he's worked with the best of the best in men's fashion, from Cardin, Ralph Lauren, Yamamoto. Earlier this year, Wayne realised a dream to record a true British rock and roll song, which he did with Danny and the Champions of the World and Friends earlier this year. Settle down as we sip our cappuccinos in what is fast becoming one of my favourite Soho haunts, the classy Little Italy. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is your London Legacy. Before we meet this week's wonderful guest, here's a little something for you. If you're a fan of the show and would like to get involved and support us at Your London Legacy and help us keep producing amazing content just for you, you can get involved over on our Patreon page. We take every penny and we'll reinvest it back into the show. If you want to get involved and get hold of some really cool benefits or have us create your very own London Legacy episode or maybe meet up with us and other London Legacy lovers in London, you can do that too over at www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's get on with the show. So I'm going to say hello to Wayne from Buckhurst Hill today, who is our guest on the show. Good afternoon, Wayne. Good afternoon, Steve. So am I allowed to give you a real name? Yeah, why not? Yeah, Wayne, Wayne's real name is Wayne Kirvin, but best known by his moniker, Wayne from Buckhurst Hill. So, I mean, let's let's just kick off straight away by saying, where, where does Wayne from Buckhurst Hill, you, you live in Buckhurst Hill, obviously. No. Oh, you don't? Are you no, born, no, born no. I had a shop in Buckhurst Hill shop. for many okay. years, and I met Robert Elms doing a TV program. So for those uninitiated, he's the BBC Radio London presenter. And yeah, and, and I London. met him yeah. and um, talking and whatever, because we had we both knew Nick Logan, who he worked for, and it was a neighbour of mine and a friend of mine. And um, as time went on, I thought, I'll give him a ring. And I rang up and I said, uh, you know, this is Wayne. We was talking about records, talking about music. And he said, uh, do I know you? I've met you, haven't I? Because I just said, oh, this is Wayne from Buckhurst Hill. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, then I used to get people ringing me from there asking me questions as well as me ringing them. So it was a two-way uh -huh. thing. And I became a regular called Wayne from Buckhurst Hill. And eventually after 10 years or 12 years, he would introduce me as Wayne from Buckhurst Hill. If we were at the Groucho Club, he'd say, talking to one of his friends who I didn't know, oh, look, this is Wayne from Buckhurst Hill. He knows my name. Yeah. And now people say, this is Wayne from Buckhurst Hill. Even my wife says, I'm Mrs. Wayne from Buckhurst Hill. <laughs> Mrs. Wayne. <laughs> Fantastic. It reminds me of a recent guest we had on the show, uh, Soho George, who everyone now knows as Soho George, when in mm -hmm. fact that is not his you know, given name, obviously. Welcome to Your London Legacy. It's a pleasure Thank to you. have you on the podcast. Thank uh, you. And in fact, on this occasion, you reached out to me via Soho George, as yeah, I understand. George, it, um, George said, give him a ring. So I said, no, all right, when I get home. Give him a ring now. He said, here's his phone number, and he gave me Steve's phone number. And I rang up, and I, I didn't think I was interesting enough. But George thinks I am, so if George thinks I am, I must be. Well, let's find out. I think you are, otherwise we wouldn't be. So, so we're sitting again, which you're sitting exactly where George sat and where Ray Gelato sat previously. Um, so I'm in, I'm in great company. We're upstairs in Little Italy on Frith Street, next to Bar Italia, the famous little Italian coffee shop, one of the oldest Italian coffee shops in London, I guess. Probably is, yeah. yeah. And bang, slap bang opposite Ronnie Scott. So we're right in the heart of uh, good old-fashioned Soho, which is part of your upbringing, your culture, and this is this is what we want to talk to you about today, Wayne. Is um, I first came here when I was seven. Your story, oh, your story. <laughs> um, people can't see you. So, what's your what's your approximate age? You don't have to give you exact age, but seven, I'm seventy four next month. Seventy four next month. Yes, congratulations. Thank you. you. You don't you don't look it. You look, oh, you look a young man. You're very kind. I know. <laughs> So let's. So you're known for your interest in fashion and music and style throughout the through fifties and sixties and through your ownership of um, the men's fashion shop in East London. Yes, I've been very lucky. I've not done a day's work in my life. <laughs> well, if you've enjoyed what you've done, some people will say you haven't done a day's work in your life. So 
I guess if you've taken pleasure and you still look as young and as fit and as healthy and still smiling. Well, I've met a few very interesting people who I'm still in touch with. Sure. Right from the early days. And what's so nice is that everyone likes to reminisce and it's very melancholy because they were there at a particular time I was there. But what's also nice is a lot of young people want to know about me and what I was like in the 60s. And what the East End was like as well, you know, because the East End has changed so much over the years. And uh, they like to know where we went, what we did, how I first went to Soho, what, you know, my general background. And they're interested in the music. And they even dress like I used to dress years ago. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, that, that kind of look has retained. I, we were always moving on, you know. We always changed every so often. Some people went by the wayside and couldn't be bothered with clothes and style but the ones that did always changed but everybody loves that probably late 50s early 60s style or I would call it pre-Beatles so when do you think you first got I don't know the fashion bug the the thing in your head that said I I, I need to look smart I need to have a certain look I want to be have my own look look different from other people where where was it my, my family were always well dressed my uncles my mother's brothers my my brother-in-laws my grandfather were always well dressed they always went to tailors they didn't just have sunday best they had best all the time although they worked in smithfields or billingsgate or uh, delivered fish most of the family uh it was a jewish thing i think you know being brought up in the jewish area everybody dressed well you know even if they had nothing Mm. you know even if they had newspaper on the floor uh they dressed well so uh, that was my environment, how I was brought up. Post-war, I had everything I wanted. My grandfather spoiled me rotten because all my cousins were girls. And my grandfather, I loved going out with him delivering meat and uh, putting bets on for him. I can remember talking about where we are. Because Soho, before licensed betting was legal, I think in 62, nearly all the bookmakers in Soho were Jewish. And they, were contri- they, they weren't allowed to go into Shaftesbury Avenue or Oxford Street. They, they, they knew what was going on. Everybody knew where the book, bookies were. And my grandfather, and there was a community here in Soho. You know, there were greengrocers, mm. butchers. There were, there were all different types. It was a community, uh, certainly when I first came here. And, what age are we talking about? You uh, this time? is early 50s. So how old are you to have been? Seven. Seven. Or eight. And I used to, every time, off of school. Yeah. If, if it was a Saturday, yeah, my grandfather wasn't particularly... Uh, Not orthodox, I would say. <laughs> um, if it was a Saturday, I'd, I'd want to go out with him. School holidays, I was always out with him. Or I was out on my own playing over the debris, you know, around uh, Stepney, Mile End and what have you. So I got to know the East End and the West End very well, extremely well. I always felt uncomfortable when he used to, one of the guys had the day off and we would deliver meat in West London or in South London. I felt itchy, you know, it wasn't the same. Because I loved the cinemas, you know, the architecture of the cinemas. I knew where every Odeon, ABC was. And what I loved about going out with my grandfather, he would point out things. He would say, oh, that's Toshi's over there. Go on, drop him. You know, he'd write the bet on, uh, on the back of packet of woodbines. Yeah. And I would go over to him and he'd say, oh, he says, uh, Maury owes me some money. You know, go over, he owes me five bob and so on. And I felt perfectly normal. Yeah. And I got to know these areas. And I tell you, particularly when we went to North London or South London or West London, they weren't as well dressed as we were. There was something about it. There was something about the East End of London. North, when I say the East End of London, I'm not talking about south of the A13. I really didn't know Docklands very well. Yeah. I didn't know so much as Stepney as I did Mile End, because I went to school in Seaford Street initially, which is right next to Charrington's. And um, so my East End was Hackney, Bethnal Green, Mile End. So were you, did you dress up yourself when you were that age, sort of seven? What sort of clothes were you wearing sure, at Sure, I used age? to go to the tailors with my uncles. Uh-huh. He used to go, to, one uncle would go to, say, Maxi Cohen's. My uncle Albert would say, oh, I got the Maxi Cohen's. And uh, his brother Ernie would say, no, Lou Rose is better. I'll go to Lou Rose, you know, and, and so on. So I knew these names. So even at that young age, oh, you, sure. you were getting fitted out? Yeah, my grandfather used to go to Maxi Cohen's, and, uh, which is Allgate. 
and he always used to buy shirts in Albert's, which is was very famous at that time mm -hmm. for shirts and ties and what have you. Uh, the front of the shop is still there, but unfortunately, um, Albert disappeared in the early 60s. Mm. But I was aware, you know, I was aware of it was the case that you would be automatically go to a tailor's and not a high street tailor's. I don't mean to be snobbish about this. I never went to Burton's or John Temple's or Weaver the Wearer, not because I didn't want to go there. I wasn't aware of them. They were like, you know, it's a bit like I like to go to Cardoma for a cup of coffee, mm. you know, when I'm a kid, you mm. know, or Lyons's. But I wouldn't right. go to a so-called Greasy Spoon, mm. except one. <laughs> God. Uh, because, give, give a yeah, because um, <laughs> going back to, uh, I would say, I think my grandfather first delivered meat there because it was hard it was on rations and nev will forgive me but uh, uh his dad used to buy meat off of my so grandfather. we're talking uh, about 53 we're talking about polices we're talking about polices yeah, yeah. yeah who were uh, guest nev polici lovely guy was a guest on the show several weeks back and i think i might have might have offended him by i didn't actually call polices a greasy spoon but it's it's you know what i mean it's a it's a cafe stroke restaurant of oh, italian sure. origin yeah, it's very small, but it's got all the facade, particularly the interior. It's is beautiful. Art, it's is, different is from any other sort of cafe. Yeah, that walnut veneer yeah, is yeah, wonderful. Yeah. So <laughs> you're saying you used to deliver, your granddad used to deliver meat. I used meat, to be with him, yeah. used to go around with him and actually deliver meat too. Yeah, you? yeah. You get half a, half a bullock, throw it on the kitchen table, chop it up, look out, make sure there was no policeman uh, looking around, you know, and cut it up and it wasn't pop it up. Because it was 100% kosher and we don't mean in the cut of the meat we mean it yeah <laughs> yeah because in those days it was rations how could a business run yeah on rations and if people look down their noses and say well how did claridges exist after the war mm. you know yeah how did uh, the savoy exist after the war there must have been something going on yeah yeah so i experienced particularly the east end that's why soho and the east end are very very similar very similar indeed and it was great i loved the lights i used to love October. I used to love autumn in Soho and autumn in the East End. Because the East End was markets, wasn't it? It was the waste. It was Whitechapel waste. Mm. It was, uh, you know, Dalston Market. It was Columbia Road. It was all great. And, and all the people that lived there shopped there. You know, you'd go down the waste uh, on a Saturday. You go past Wickham's. That was a department store, by the way. And you go past Charitons and, and you walk around and the lights were tw twinkling and, you, you know, it was fantastic. And, and as you went up Bethnal Green Road and you went going up towards Mare Street, then it was different again. It was a different community, but they had the same outlook on life, you know, particularly after the war, because there was less guys around. There was less men around. Mm. You know, I noticed that. You know, that uh, there was women everywhere and they're always dressing up. They're going to Marlers, you know, for their for their hat. That was a famous Jewish lady shop on the corner of uh, King Edward Road. And my nan used to shop there. And I loved the East End. I, I probably up the worst thing that ever happened to me was uh, my parents separated and I moved to Essex. That was like getting 10 years in in uh, the Wormwood Scrubs. So it really affected you, did it, emotionally? Most definitely. Yeah. I still had friends. I still had friends in, in, in East London who I kept in contact with because at the time uh, I was sort of going out to Essex when I was 13, I'd made a lot of friends from Stamford Hill and Stoke Newington. And, um, and we dressed all differently. We continued migrating their parents and my parents, in other words, not telling everywhere, everyone where they got their suits from or where they bought their shirts from or their knitwear or whatever. It was, it was a kind of, we wanted to remain uh, kind of ahead of everyone else and places we used to go to. And I'll tell you a funny story, actually. Um, anyone knows Stoke Newington and Stanford Hill? Well, that uh, might, my you, dad certainly will. He was right, born well, and brought up You know up the there. milk shop, don't you? I, I the milk store? Yes. Well, the milk store in the early 60s, there used to be a club we used to go, like a bar, like a coffee shop we went to called the fountain the jewish guys you say love fountain <laughs> of course uh, the yachts sorry <laughs> the um the non-jewish people used to call it the fountain anyway i took my granddaughter for a kind of sentimental tour up church street a few months ago and i actually asked robert elms uh, does anybody remember the fountain 
see, and a few people did. And anyway, I, I, I popped in to, uh, to the milk shop and uh, I said, um, anybody here remember the fountain? And he went, you're about the 50th person that's come in here and asked <laughs> me about the, the show. <laughs> so I said, uh, oh, really? I said, I'll mention it. I'm, you're not Wayne from Buckhurst still, are you? So he picked up a box of mozzas. He said, clear off out of it and <laughs> laughed. You know, it was a friendly yeah. way of doing it. Yeah. So that's, a, it's, you know, for old time's sake, shall we say. Wonderful. So from a very young age, you've expressed an interest and a passion for, for fashion. Style. Style, not, 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 fashion. not fashion. Because fashion, I suppose, is what is currently trending at a given time, whereas I suppose you would perceive yourself as being ahead of the, the fashion. Curve. Well, it was a personal thing yeah. for me and my friends, particularly, and it spread from Hackney to Walthamstow, which was kind of an arty area. Uh, Walthamstow has always been uh, kind of artistically inclined. So uh, I made friends with guys from, from that area as well. And we started going around together. And eventually, when I went to London College of Fashion, I met different people again, which led to going to different cinemas. Instead of going to the ABC, you know, the Regency in Stoke Newington or the, the, the Granada, Walthamstow, they were going to a place called the Academy, which showed continental films. Mm. And they dressed differently again, where we had short jackets, trousers with vents at the side, slight winkle pickers and long pointy collars. They were, they were dressing in a different kind of way because in lots of cases they were uh, not from the East End. You know, so, so they were dressing in a more bohemian way. They came from way out of London. They weren't necessarily in the suburbs. They came from outside of London and they had a different outlook on style and fashion or whatever the case may be. They were more arty because most people in the East End didn't go to art school at London College of Fashion. And so I got a big interest in, apart from always having an interest in cinemas as well as cinema, not just the films. So the show. architecture, the, the architecture, the, the style. Yeah, I got interested in um, in the academy and the everyman and cinemas mm. like that because they were showing different kinds of films. And um, so I moved on. So I went through that modernist period. That uh, period. It's got nothing to do with jazz. One lot of modernists like trad jazz, and another lot. Of we didn't. We bought popular music but we wanted it by the original artists. Mm -hmm. Nearly all the records that were released were cover versions, and we wanted it by the original artists. The word modernist didn't come to, uh, you know, the Barbizier, you know, the architect. It didn't. It was something that was made up. And somebody once said to me, who were the original modernists? Well, it cropped up once. There was a group of guys, you might be familiar with their names. One was Lionel Bart. Yeah. The other one was um, Harold Pinsa. Uh-huh. And the other one was Anthony Newley. And they're all Hackney boys, you know, all Jewish Hackney boys. And it was at the time when I think Lionel Bart was interviewed on, uh, on, on the television. He had a hit with things saying what they used to be. And they said, oh, Mr. Bart, you don't look like the normal playwright. Or He said, you look different. Your appearance is different. And because at that time he was shopping in Jewish tailors and was quite a smart looking guy. And he said, I suppose I'm a bit modern, aren't I? Next thing you know, I think it was the sketch, said Lionel Bart, modernist. And they used to go to a place called Barry's because they were reasonably well-known in the area. I think Anthony Newley came from, uh, I think it was more um, Whitechapel, just on the borders, Cambridge Heath Road, and Harold Pinter was from Clapton, and Lionel Bart was from Stepney. And they were quite well-known. And uh, so they used to go to this place called Barry's in uh, in Mare Street, just off of Mare Street. Men's Outfitters. No, 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 it was a dance hall. A dance hall. It was, right, it was really an Italian to learn dancing. It's above a furniture shop in a narrow way. And they used to go there because they weren't bothered. You know, they weren't interrupted. Mm -hmm. and They couldn't go to a pub like you could. And, you know, Maybe they could in Birmingham or they could have yeah. done it. Anyway, um, and of course, a lot of the guys that used to go there uh, were Italian waiters. Uh, there were uh, you know, people that lived in Clerkenwell. And how did they go there? scooters and all these then guys used to watch these guys go by scooters and see them all piled outside and they dressed differently you know had a different kind of hair start to the teds of the day mm. and, whatever. and uh i would say modernist there's you know it's nothing to do with soho and modern jazz and everything that's where the name came from that's a fallacy obviously there was modern jazz at the time in soho and there was traditional jazz which was mostly in the more traditional places and you know it was considered pop traditional mm -hmm. trade jazz you know it was on six five special and the acker bilks and chris barbers and 
Monty Sunshines and all that lot. And they could jive to it as modern jazz you couldn't. Uh, but it, modern jazz was very selective. Nothing to do with modernist. The name is nowhere near connected. How that came about, I don't know. I really don't know. But anyway, things changed for me when I went to college and I used to work one day a week at Sportique in Old Compton Street. And this is like 62. So what would a modernist of that era look like? What was the styling? Originally. Of, yeah. What um, was the styling? Because it, it, it was styles brought in from different... Yeah, from the, I think Italy originally and, uh, the biggest influence on modernist was Perry Como. Watching the Perry Como right. show on television. Uh-huh. Because he was very relaxed. You know, he'd have a... Not a cardigan like I'm wearing, but a bellow sleeve alpaca cardigan. Yeah. He would have, we didn't know it at the time, an Italian suit, because after all, he was Italian, and so his taste was, was Italian. Uh, so it was that very kind of relaxed tailoring, that very easy sports jacket. And then guests he'd have on his show, you know, were normally Italian. Everyone was called Bobby, weren't they? Bobby Rydell, Bobby Darren, Bobby this, Bobby... Anyway, and they always came on with a sweater, a particular mm. polo sweater. And the three-button, collar with three buttons, mm-hmm. V-neck, stripes, and what have you. Bobby Rydell dressed the best. Bobby Rydell had the best sweaters. And, of course, we used to call it, because they had a collar and three buttons, generically, a Fred Perry. It wasn't a Fred Perry. No. But... We called it a Fred Perry because it had a collar and three buttons. Fred Perry was everywhere. It was like Cadbury's chocolate. You could buy it in Army Navy. You could buy it in Gardeners, you know, in, mm-hmm. in Allgate. You could buy it in camp shops. Fred Perry was really the obtainable three button. So we wanted to wear that look. So it was kind of Italian. It was kind of American. Uh, not Ivy League by that time. Uh, it was that very relaxed, uh, short haircut. And, of course, we could get it because we knew tailors that could do it. You know, it wasn't readily available. Cecil G was a bit flash. What would you do? You'd go into men's outfitters and you'd say, I want this particular look. You'd draw it for them. Yeah, draw it. So we want shoulders like that. We want very, very narrow, very sharp oval shoulders, which they wore, Uh which he wore. We want... And there was a guy called Flash. He sold shirts. He had a stall both in Dalston and in Middlesex Street. And uh, he used to have a label named after his son called Mark Hitchens. Now, now he was a legendary. Flash was legendary. All the East End boys used to buy their shirts on a, on a Sunday morning and, or a Saturday afternoon. And he used to get lengths of cloth from Eagle Shirt Company that made shirts for Turnbull and Asser in those days. And I didn't know who Turnbull and Asser was, German Street, uh, Savile Row. It, was, you know, it wasn't us. We always thought that was sort of... Poshin. Well, for... Uh, kind of uh, gay lieutenants and things. Uh, nothing wrong with being gay, but this is a, of the time. Anyway, um, so we had our suits made, um, and the one com- one shop that we liked, although I was at college, so I, I didn't um, earn a lot of money, but I used to DJ and could get records, imports, before they were released over here, and I'd take a chance and buy six copies of. Give you an example. I remember buying six copies of... Personality by Lloyd Price. I remember it. And uh, sell them at school and say, this is going to be the next big record. I didn't know Lionel Bart was going to cover it, but, you know, it was R&B, it was rhythm and blues. Lloyd Price was kind of one of the singers that we uh-huh. followed. Lordy Miss Claudia and all that, you know? Yeah. Anyway, so that's what I did. And I earned money so to buy six, clothes. get one for yourself and sold the others at school? Yeah, at school. And they sold pretty quickly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, everybody didn't want to wait. I remember my biggest claim for success was It's Now or Never. Now, when Elvis Presley uh, released It's Now or Never, it was his second release after he came out of the army. It wasn't released here. There was a problem with, uh, because it was, uh, you know, Sol Mio, there was a problem with uh, the publishing rights. Uh-huh. So instead of following Stuck on You, which was the original single when it, he came out of the army, they released a track from Elvis's back album. And I'm looking, because I never bought Ed Me, you know, or Melody Maker. No, I was buying Cashbox and Billboard, wasn't I? I was cool. And um, so I went to Paul in Whitechapel and said, do you got any co- anything? You got It's Now or Never? And he said, yeah. He said, I've got six copies. I said, I'll have them. He said, no, you won't. You'll have three and be done with it. So I bought three. And that I did because I was collecting Elvis records. So I kept one, took two in. And six and seven, six and seven is ain't normally, but for an import, it was nine and eleven. 
So I went back, I said, I've sold those anymore. He said, well, I've got another batch because you know what's happened? It's not going to be released until October and this was in August. So I've got another 20 coming in. So I said, let me see if I can get some money. I said, I'll have 10. So I ordered another, sold those. And it was great. I remember buying Mac the Knife. Everybody thought Bobby Darren was Dream Lover yes. and Splish Splash. And yes. I thought, that's a bloody good record, that. But it didn't. So I flopped. So I bought six copies of Mac the Knife. Could I give them away? No. Seriously. So what, have you still got any from your early collecting days? Do you, I have. I have. But, um, you know, everybody goes through that phase where, you know, some of the old records that you used to have, you wish you'd have kept. Yeah. And uh, so I haven't naturally got anything like I used to have, you know, but I've got some, uh, this, the hard ones I've got, the hard to get. Yeah. No, hang on to them. They must be worth a few quid and it's just nice to have them anyway. So was your fashion sense dictated by the music or vice versa? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what it was is... Uh, we all wanted to look different. We, you know, if I wore a gingham shirt, they wouldn't wear their gingham shirt, and vice versa. It was we were going through a phase, if I remember rightly. I was at college, but I still had other friends in Hackney, and I kind of changed how I looked. I used to buy Playboy and Esquire from you know the newsagents mm-hmm. in Old Compton Can't Street. Think why you bought Playboy? Oh, for the clothes. Of course. Yeah. No other reason. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the look was different in there. You know, it, you know, and I used to love watching Johnny Staccato and 77 Sunset Strip, how mm. they were dressed, you know. Our cookie combed his hair and, you know, the, the kind of clothes they wore and the attitude. And we, we looked at America. We looked at this kind of – and then by this time, I was DJing and going to the discotheque in Waldorf Street. And while I was there, Town Magazine, Colin Woodhead asked me would I model for Town Magazine, but I couldn't, couldn't get away from college. So Mark Fell, Peter Sugar and Mickey Simmons did it. But during that time, and I used to play at the discotheque, um, which was in Waldorf Street, people used to ask me, where'd you get that record? What's that record? And so it continued from school to, to the clubs I used to go to. So really, I suppose... The Royal was the place that we used to go to on a Monday and a Thursday. And then the people from the Royal uh, then went to Soho. So if you look at it, Barry's, the Royal, then Soho. Where was the Royal? Was that in Tottenham? Tottenham. Tottenham. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So we used to go there and we used to dress a different kind of way. And I would say the word mod as opposed to modernist probably came from there. Particularly people in South London that hated us particularly at the Lyceum. When we used to go to the Lyceum, there was always this North London, South London divide. And we were always better dressed. We was always better dancers. And there was always fights. But we took a different stance on what we wore. So we started wearing American-looking clothes. And the only place we could get it at that time was Austin's in Shaftesbury Avenue. If you remember that famous Georgie Fame wasn't Madras, but everyone calls it a Madras check jacket he wore on the uh, Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames play Rhythm and Blues at the Flamingo. What a mouthful. Anyway, um, you've got, re- you got a remarkable memory for he, names He places. got this jacket from Austin's and Georgie Fame was quite cool. You know, this is before he was at the Flamingo. He used to play at the scene and that's where I first met him. Either he was uh, the... the the bill uh, on the bill. There was always like a top, like the animals was the regular band there, and he would be second, or they would have the Stones there, and he would be second, and so on. And he came, as you probably know, from, from Billy Fury's group, and he was always the cool one. Well, he used to notice when he used to play at the discotheque because he used to come. He used to do. He'd be at the you know the Hundred Club, the disco. He'd do like four, four places in one night, you know. Anyway, so we dressed that American way, and he was the only one that was kind of, of all the groups at that time, because a lot of them were outside of London. Oh, he was from, where was he from? Lancashire somewhere. That dressed a particular kind of way. So we would buy tab collar shirts, but not the Beatle tab collar shirts. We'd buy the American way, or we would buy a softer jacket, a three-button jacket. We would buy easy fit trousers we would buy loafers and so on and this is round about 1963 when the mods copied what we were wearing before that and in lots of ways it stuck so that's my 
theory and my own personal experience, you could argue about that or whatever the case may be, um, the discotheque was the most influential club. The discotheque, most of the guys that came from Tottenham Royal were from Hackney or from Stoke Newington or Walthamstow or the case may be. They first went to uh, another club which didn't last too long, um, which was called, uh, ah, it's in Tottenham Court Road, the name escapes me, Last Chance. That's what it was called. And illegal gambling, Chemi de Fur was there. And so it was above the discotheque. Mm -hmm. The club, you know, was really a front for illegal gambling upstairs. And um, so it was raided every five minutes, you know, after kids were on Purple Arts. After the, the, but you know, it was raiding. We used to jump out the back window along the fire escape, go all the way along. And that fire escape actually led to the whiskey, which was above the flamingo. And then when they'd gone, we'd all come back again. So as one raid was taking place, you were scampering out the back window to another club, mm. and that had cleared. You'd, you'd nip back in again. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. couldn't make it up, could you? Really? No. It's fabulous. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you: if you love the show and would like to get involved. Grab some cool stuff, get shout-outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or even meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger. Just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. So what sort of age are you when this is all going? Well, now I'm about 18, 18. so I'm getting on a bit. So you're in college? No, I'd no, left. You'd left college. Um, the reason I, I left college, I, as I say, I had a job at Sportique. Um, and I had a job with a company called Hector Powell in um, Dalston. And, and I'd learned cutting and I'd learned styling. And that was going to be my profession. But I figured I don't want to work in a factory. So Hector Powell, who I understood from the London College of Fashion, were going to make Cardin in this country under license. And Cardin was my hero. I mean, if everybody has their seven years. Well, my first seven years with designers was Pierre Cardin. I think between 1960, when he first did menswear, up till 1967, when everything went nuts. You know, his designs were totally unwearable. That was my first seven years. And then the next seven years was Saint Laurent, and the next seven years was Armani, and it's all gone along like that in terms of a designer. Although I always dressed... I would never buy an item with a logo on the front or a V-neck sweater with a designer label. Well, what's the point? It's got to stand out, isn't it? Yeah. Once they did that, you knew they were finished. Or once they brought a perfume out, you knew they were finished. Yeah, now everything's branded and logoed. Unfortunately. And, which uh, dis destroys it because people want to show off, you know, look what mm. I've got, look what I can afford. They want to be part of this high street Yeah, look. so when, when, like, you know, in that article in... So when it said that style icon, I've always looked for style. I've never, never really considered myself particularly an icon. Now, come on, there's loads of guys that I've met over the years that are much more iconic than me. And those people I've always remembered. And I was very fortunate to meet some really stylish people along the way. And I was really pleased to be born in the period I was born in as well. I hate to be born in the 60s or in the 70s. Why is that? Being born in the 40s. Well, I think what had happened in the 60s, everything was invented in the 50s. In the 70s, everything was invented in the 60s and so on. It all went along the line. And I think that um, we used our imagination. So you're saying there's a lack of originality in those oh, by all the, Yeah, there's a lack of originality. Certainly originality now. Yeah. You know, all the, and I would say a lot of people... A lot of people that go to college now um, and learn fashion, they keep being, how can I say, resurrecting the past. There's nothing new. And that goes for taste in music. That goes for just about everything. I think, you know, hip-hop is fantastic. I think that was the last real thing that was, uh, and that's a few years now, that is, in my estimation was original. Mm. Although it was R&B, really, when you think about it. Yeah, by any other word, really. So when did you set up your men's fashion shop? Right, so I was an agent for people I'd met along the way. I, I'd met Vittorio Missoni at Browns. I'd met uh, you know, various people uh, being an agent as well. Uh, John Franco Ferrey uh, I worked with. And uh, I thought to myself, after being an agent for a long time, I'd kind of wind down. I had a family. 
Uh, I didn't want to travel up to town so much. And I thought I'd open the shop in Buckhurst Hill. There you go, Wayne from Buckhurst Hill. So yeah. I opened the shop, must be 30 years ago now. And I wanted to keep uh, things that wasn't easy to get. I'd gone all through the Ivy League bit. John Simons was still doing it. There wasn't much point. Uh, so I opened with people like Comte Garçon and Missoni and Romeo Gili, people like that, which weren't easy to get to. There was only maybe Browns, there was Joseph, shops like that. Uh, so that's what I opened with. But gradually, my heart still was in that Ivy League. What's that? What's the Ivy League look? In a nutshell, it's the Ivy League universities, mm -hmm. yeah. right? The seven universities that were placed in New England. And initially, Yao had a shop in on campus, and it was secondhand clothes. As the, the various uh, students went there, they passed their clothes on. And um, there was a particular look, uh, probably developed by Brooks Brothers, and then followed by Jay Press and others, that had this very kind of, and this, this was in the 30s, stroke 40s, that really has become timeless. You know, whether it be a Letterman cardigan, or sweater or jacket, or whether it be an Ivy League jacket, which is traditionally uh, no pads, unconstructed, soft shoulder, trousers worn short. And the Americans forgot about it. The Americans really forgot about it. That It was a look that, you know, they were hippies. You know, they went through the hippie bit. Mm. They, they they weren't as we think. They didn't that, that wasn't that clean-cut, button-down shirt that everybody said, why was it a button-down shirt? Well, before polo shirts... They played polo, and they needed a button down to keep the collar written in their eyes. If you believe that, you believe anything, but that was the story. Yeah. Um, and that look was lost. It was really lost. We were wearing in the in, in the kind of 60s. Americans thought we were nuts. Everything in Austin's was polyester and cotton and tricell and so synthetic. That's the look you wanted to Yeah, but we wanted the here. original. We wanted Madras. We wanted seersucker. We wanted Oxford shirts. We wanted that kind of look. There was no one selling it. Really no one's saying, I, John Simons opened the Ivy shop in latterly, in 66, I think, you know, during that Peyton Place, Harrington time, where he nicked the name from. Rodney Harrington was the character in the series. And that famous G9 jacket has been made from everyone from Grenfell to Barracuda. Anyway, the Japanese reinvented the Ivy, the Ivy League look. And there's a great book out, everyone should own, which I'm sure they do, called Amatora. And that describes okay. how the Japanese reinvented the American What's it look. called, the book? Amatora. Amatora. Yeah. You see, what happened, a lot of companies like Levi's and stuff sold all their machinery to the Japanese. You know, so all the best denim, you know, the best salvage edge denim was being produced in Japan because Americans thought no one's going to want this quality, we want to sell volume. We don't want niche market, you know. But even they had to reinvent themselves and open up uh, Levi Vintage. And they had the, the last of the, the, the old um, machinery that they didn't sell to the Japanese. Anyway, so we were looking that. So if you look at the modernist look and then the mod that took parts of the modernist look and then we went for the ivy look. When I opened my shop, that's what I went for. Up until I closed, it and was very much an that, Ivy League. How did that go down with the, the local Well, a lot market? of my did, customers, well, if it, it wasn't really for the Essex market. Yeah. That, the, I know you shouldn't talk about Essex being stereotyped, but they were. You know, they liked, they wanted more sharper, flasher. They were into Gucci Poochie, Pudding and Pie, weren't they? Uh, and I'm selling kind of like a seersucker shirt with a label they'd never heard of, or it was my label, or what the case may be. But there was a following. There was a following that understood, uh, went to John Simons or, or, or went to American Classics. And gradually, probably in the last 10 years, that look has now become the new mod look. You know, the mods mm. now don't no longer wear what we wore when we were mods. They now have developed an Ivy League look. You know, they all will buy a Madras jacket or a button-down shirt. Uh, they should be wearing Lacoste and not Fred Perry, but I won't go into that. Is the shop still open? No. No. I retired a couple of years ago. Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, not because I wanted to. My wife twisted my arm, you know, and she was right because I was spending a lot of the time in town and oh. it was, you know, close to shop, go up to town in the evening and that kind of stuff. Why do you think fashion is so important, A, to you and B, to people generally? What? Because you can look at me and I'm not anything like fashion at all. I don't 
doesn't particularly interest me personally. I'm interested in it from a cultural point of view. But why, why is it so important to people to, to have I think their own? fashion, uh, everyone remembers fashion in their teens, don't they? You know? Yeah. They either grow out of it, get married, have kids, buy a dog, buy a house. But really, they remember the clothes they wore when they were teenagers, just mm. like the music they wore and the films they saw when they were teenagers. But there are some people that have kind of mundane lives and they get to wear their clothes on a Friday and Saturday and still think vinyl is the thing, which I find it a little bit um, kind of ridiculous. You know, it's not practical, is it? But it seems to be fashionable to play vinyl. But I, I, I think that uh, that mod fashion is not fashion. You know, they don't look at fashion magazines. Mm. Yeah, I, they don't look at GQ. They might look at Jocks and Nerds because Jocks and Nerds is for that kind of generation. You know, they, they'll have um, manufacturers rather than designers. You know, they're Pinpoint Grenfell who makes the best kind of raincoat or the best Harrington is Grenfell. And they'll point it out. And those people, um, the new mod, shall we say, have a strong interest in clothes. A real strong, their wives don't, from what I can see. <laughs> they, they wear ordinary, nice Nice clothes. Your wives probably just don't get it but, at all. Yeah, yeah. But um, does your wife get your? Yeah, I mean, my wife was in fact she worked for Mary Quant, right? So she's she's kind of knowledgeable about clothes and fashion. But there's a big difference between clothes that you like and f fashion that you like. In what sense? I think it depends on your where you live, what job you do. Obviously. The last fashion statement, should we say, is a beard, is a bike, right? You know the type I'm talking mm -hmm. you, you know, because they've now moved into areas uh, that they don't come from. You know, hipsters have moved into Hackney, but they don't look like they come from Hackney, do they? You go to Essex, they look like they came from Hackney. And I think that's the fashion. I think the hipsters was the last big fashion statement. And they wore workwear. You know, workwear, people now will pay as much for a suit uh, as, as they will for a pair of jeans. They'd object to paying 300 quid for a suit, but they wouldn't object to paying 300 quid for a pair of jeans. Mm. Strange. Does it matter anymore where things come from in London? Because we're all such a big... So we were talking about what is a Londoner earlier before we came no, alive. No, it doesn't really matter. Just before um, you associate an area with a certain group of people, a certain class of clothes, a certain... Culture. I think it's a shame that London, uh, once upon a time, was the, London was full of villages, weren't they? The yeah. Irish came from there, and the Jews came from there, yeah. and the West Indians came from there. They don't anymore. They've all spread everywhere, except the Jews, you know? They moved from Whitechapel, right, to Finchley, and now they've moved back to Maribyrn. Can you afford to live in Maribyrn, right? Peckham, the West Indians can't afford to live in Peckham. That's where they came from, and so on. And I think nearly everywhere in London looks the same. Geographically, they look different, but every high street, every neighbourhood looks the same. It's all controlled by multiples. I, uh, there was a time when it was cinemas. I used to love cinemas, you know. And uh, I knew that, you know, Western North London had it first, then we got it after it left the West End, and then South London got it last. And there was lovely cinemas. And I used to come up and say to my granddad, oh, Let's have a look around Leicester Square because you could drive around Leicester Square mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. Look at the Odeon, see what's up there. Look, let's look at the Warner or the Empire. And uh, they were marvellous. Not as good as the Troxy in Commercial Row. Yeah. But, and there were some great cinemas. And they were as important to me architecturally. Uh, I loved everything about them. I liked the uh, billboard. You know, I liked looking at what's up there. And the flea pits. What great, what terrific was there a better flea pit than the Benners in Salmon's Lane in Stepney? You know, they gave you an umbrella when it was raining if you sat in a particular position. And it was great. Yeah. And times were terrific. That's why I was pleased when I was born. Um, now, if I said to you, oh, do you remember? You'd Google it, wouldn't you? How well, exciting that is. Yes. No, it's pathetic, isn't it? Because it forces us not to retain things in our own head, not to have memories, in good memories. And it, everything's too easy nowadays in terms of learning. So lots of things have lost an identity in yeah. London. Although there are still characters in London. You know, all right, there's not the Connolly Rooms anymore. There's not the, 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 the Francis Bacon's walking up Greek Street, I can remember. But there's, uh, there's some really great characters still in Soho and the East End. why I 
set up and created and host you all on the legacy is to to get and talk to the people such as yourself who are characters or are doing great things in and around London who aren't homogenized you know by big multinationals but have got good personal stories to tell and and understand London and you fit the bill perfectly. I wanted to touch on your your music as well. Oh yeah, your yeah. love of music because we've, we've spoken quite a lot about fashion, but obviously the two are very closely connected. And I see recently you've also you've actually released your your own record. Well, doesn't with, everybody? With doesn't everyone? Boy, girl, mum, dad want to make a record? Absolutely. But at you know, the age of seventy three, yeah, to yeah, do a yeah. video, and what a fabulous one it is! I know. Too. I've I've said this story many times. I've even forgotten the right version. Um, I was a great fan of um, rock and roll. Yeah. And when I meant rock and roll, I don't mean rhythm and blues, and I don't mean, I mean rock and roll. Not rockabilly. Rockabilly is still kind of a section. But I like that British rock and roll, you know, that kind of, the version you never bought. You never bought Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. You always bought a Sun record or derived from Sun records, that rockabilly. You never, ever bought English groups. They were naff. But I wanted to make that sound achieve that pre-Beatles sound before Fenders were out, you know, using a different kind of guitar and that old-fashioned arrangement. And I was uh, talking to a friend of mine. Uh, I, I went over to the Betsy, one of my favourite pubs in London. The Betsy's over near Farringdon, um, Clerkenwell. Sorry, we were looking at a band over there and they were really great. And, it, you know, they called it Americana. I can't tell the difference between country and western Americana, to be honest with mm-hmm. you. But anyway, they were great. And a friend of mine, um, Don, said to me, oh, I know these people. Uh, you know, I know, I know um, Danny. And uh, I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, it's funny. We follow each other on Instagram, but I've never actually met him. And he likes the kind of music I liked. And he said, suggest the covers album, you know, records on the covers album. And obviously, he didn't want the obvious. He didn't want a Chuck Berry or a Little mm-hmm. Richard or an Elvis Presley. He wanted the more obscure tracks, but he wanted rock and roll. He right. didn't want rockabilly. Uh, he didn't want Carl Mann from Sun. And he didn't want you know the obvious kind of rockabilly tracks. And I always loved Jack Scott. I really loved Jack Scott. And Jack Scott's Leroy is one of my favorites. And uh, My True Love is a favorite. And... Um, anyway, so I made this list and he came out. He said, oh, thanks, Wayne, you know... Uh, for the list and everything. And I said, I just said to Don, I wonder why Jack Scott, in, uh, my favourite record by Jack Scott, was never a hit. Yeah, it's been covered by various artists, the Cramps, etc. And he uh, couldn't make it out. And uh, I said, oh, it's a great record. You should do it. He said, you do it. I said, you're joking, you know, you're joking. It was a bit like Idol on Parade, and yeah. you do it. You know, all of a sudden it's like Elvis Presley in Loving You. He comes out, the audience, you know, you do it. And he gets up on the stage and yeah. he sings Teddy Bear like yeah, it's yeah, perfect. Yeah. Anyway, so um, that's how it came about. And I did it. And they were great. So this this band who play regularly at this uh, the pub, um, what's called? Well, the no, Danny and the Champions Danny of the, the Champions World. They're the world. very, very big. They're yes. very well known. Yeah, Danny... Um, uh, plays at the Betsy because it's one of his favourite venues. No, he's toured oh all over the world. Yeah, he's very well known. I'm very lucky to have them, and and we went into um, studio up in North London to do it, and uh, the whole band was on it. Is on it, and uh, I love it. Was so you did a couple of tracks, I think. Yeah, did um did, did an old um, Tommy Sands track. It was married to Nancy Sinatra. Yes, um, we thought there might be trouble on the publishing there because. When Tommy Sands, when Frank Sinatra left, or when Tommy, Nancy Sinatra divorced Tommy Sands, I think part of the arrangement was poor old Tommy's publishing and record deal went to her. Right. But anyway, there was no problems. There was no problem. And the one that you've done a video for. Oh, like, yeah. The Way I Walk. Yeah, yeah, we did a video. And what I did was, um, there's a film I love, which is Band Apart, which is the famous uh, Goddard film, you know, where they do a, Madison dance uh-huh. in the in the cafe, and they all run around Paris and and uh, so I got some friends together, you know, uh, Anita and Lee and David, and of course Jules and Soho George who stole it, who stole it, <laughs> who sn- snuck out from one of the, uh, the yeah, restaurants to join yeah. you on your walk around, London. and we brilliant. just filmed it, just like we tried to do Band Apart, which you know, sort of walking 
just acting normal, but kind of choreographied. Yeah, you know, if yeah. you if you look at it, yeah. it's there's not all, just there's a certain organisation to it, but it's also a little bit. Yeah, sort of and we like- we filmed part of it here or next door at um, Bar Italia, and um, yeah, it was good. No, I, I, I'm really pleased with the video. I'm re- the record's okay. We're going to do some more. I think it's great. I think it's, oh, thank re- you. it's really good fun. And uh, did the band enjoy doing it as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I actually, I was called to do something live. Oh, <laughs> good job two of them got the flu. <laughs> I was supposed to do it. I was supposed to do it uh, five tracks, five songs live. And we were booked. And two of them were real. Thank God they took the medicine <laughs> what I put in their coffee. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we're coming to the end of our, our chat now. What are you up to currently? Uh, what am I doing next? Uh, I've got to DJ a couple of things. Uh, I've got uh, modelling things coming up. Uh, what else have I got to do? Oh, there's... I never know. Believe me, I never know. As you say, you're up in town oh, three five or days four, five a week. days a week. Oh, yeah. So what, what, I mean, this is my office. They call this my office. Uh-huh. Uh, if I'm not here, then I'm at Paliches. I just... You know when you go through that? Everyone has its day. You know, in the 80s, I was always at the Ivy. You know, I was entertaining people from Milan who I represented, yeah. like Miss Sony and John Franco Ferrari. And we used to go to, uh, I used to take the Wag Club as well, of course, you know, Chris Sullivan's an old friend. But you can't be a bit of sawdust, can you? You can't no. be a little bit of uh, where, where you came. I'll never forget where you came grounded. from. Don't, don't try and create an impression. The best impression is honesty. Mm. You know, be yourself. Yeah. But I would love the youngsters not to be too retro this vintage thing you're putting people out of work guys you know you didn't mention because i don't suppose you've got you you don't have much of an ego i guess you didn't mention your association and friendship with the one and only mark boland when you were yeah yeah there's a story well i knew him he was he was younger than me and he lived in uh lived in stoke newington and um so i knew him through other people really and um, he used, he was quite friendly with a guy, another friend of mine called Jeff Dexter. And um, I used to be at Hector Powell. I told you Hector mm-hmm. Powell in, in Dalston. And there was a shop there called Connix. And Connix had, was a menswear shop. And right next to Connix was the boys' version. So all the 13-year-olds and 12-year-olds used to go there and get something exactly like their dad. Now, mm-hmm. the difference between modernists and mods was modernists used to get their clothes made, you know, or find it hard to find. Mods wanted wanted to buy it quick, right? You know, they wanted it on. So they get off the shelf, off the. They want it off the shelf, and there wasn't many shops that was that they could were attracted to because most of the shops, the menswear shops, sold what everybody sold, you know. But Connix was a bit different, and Connix in Dalston uh, had this boy shop, and guess where Jeff and uh, Mark used to go there. So that's where you met him, hanging out in that shop. Yeah, that's yeah. where I met Mark, yeah. and then then I took him to um, took him to La Fontaine, mm-hmm. and anyway, we lost track because the last time I no, it was at the Lyceum, early '63, and freezing cold that night, and there was a fight between people in the South London and North London, and they smashed the place up. Ian Sammy, Sam, Ian Samuel Smith, Sammy Samuel. It was the DJ who wrote Move It and mm-hmm. produced that Georgie Fame record. Was the DJ there at the time? And uh, that particular night, everything got smashed up. And I grabbed uh, Mark. I said, "Let's go." Because by that time, he'd moved. He said he lived in Wimbledon, but he didn't. He lived in Merton. Anyway, we won't go into that. And uh, we got out of the place, and there was like people were throwing these kind of like heavy, made of I don't know brick ashtrays at everyone. You know. So we managed to get out. He was going to Charing Cross and then go to uh, change it. Uh, I think he used to change it to Clapham Common or wherever it was. And I didn't see him again. I never saw him uh, from that day till the week before he died. Jeff opened an office opposite Saint Laurent in Bond Street where I was working, Saint Laurent Reeve Gauche. And he brought him in and he came in. Hello, still in the schmutter trade then. <laughs> a week later he died. But had you followed his career up until that point? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I I used to see from time to time Jeff uh, because he was Middle Earth and he was tiled. So I used to not go there, but I used to see Jeff from time to time. Uh, And, of course, through that period, I knew that he was in a group because when he moved to Southland, he really got interested in music. 
and obviously he'd learned to play guitar over there and he'd learned uh choose his child the band he was with and toby someone or other he was called and um yeah i followed him and then t-rex and then all of a sudden you know he did made the tyrannosaurus yeah rex album in the late 60s and yeah i know him you know i knew him yeah it's weird when that happens isn't it and uh yeah and jeff was always uh kind of a very close friend of his mm. yeah no it's tragic tragic loss on uh by all accounts a really nice guy as well yeah but the other two people in that town magazine mickey lives in australia and he came over a couple of years ago came in to see me in my shop which was nice and peter lives in toronto and his wife is on Facebook if you want to get in touch with her. So oh, the other two are still alive and kicking. Good. So how can people get in touch with you if they want? I mean, you've got the most amazing Instagram account because your output is astronomical. I don't know how many posts you post a day, but it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot. <laughs> you, you obviously enjoy doing that, you know, all your images I, that you post you know, if I'm, You know, if I'm waiting for someone, I'll put something on. I Where think do you get all the images from? Download them, I, you know, mostly Google them, yeah. you know, because I know in my head something. Yeah. If I think of something, when you get to my age, there's a lot in there, you know. There's lots of you're eras either, in there. You're either retainer or you lose Yeah, it and uh, it, it's like, worry, you know, I always say, people say, why'd you do it? And I say, it's like worry beads. Do you remember worry beads? Yes, I do. Well, I, I don't have those. And do you remember those uh, ball bearings that used to tap? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't have those either, so <laughs> I've got an Instagram site. So get me on Wayne from Buckhurst Steel. I'd be yeah. delighted. So Wayne can be found at Wayne from Buckhurst Steel as his Instagram account. If they want to get you know, your email links on there, or are you just happy to be contacted? Yeah, I do email. Through? Do you want my email? Yeah, it's give, Wayne, give it it's Wayne Kervin. Hey, do you know I can't remember it? I never remember. email myself. No, <laughs> you don't, do you? It's not the sort of thing you tend to do. No, it's Wayne Kervin at iCloud.com. Perfect. Check out the Instagram account because it, it, it's there's a lot of stuff on there and Wayne's constantly posting really good material, great shots, great imagery. And uh, uh, and also you can check out his video with his music, um, his recent release. <laughs> it sounds quite weird, doesn't the it? Last so your, one, your last, last release, release, The yeah. Way I Walk, which you can find on YouTube. Just put Wayne from Buckhurst till The Way I Walk. And it's a really cool video to go with the uh, the soundtrack as well. Wayne is a fascinating guy with great stories about London and Soho and East End and all, all, all around these parts. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Before I go, before you disappear, there's one thing I always ask, and I think I probably haven't asked you to do this yet, so you're going to have to think quickly on your feet. I always ask my guests to, to recommend or to suggest one or two places in London that they love, not necessarily famous, well-known places. They could be places that are personal to you, whether it's a walk, a museum, a park, a restaurant, somewhere that you that is personal to you. Can you think of somewhere that you could suggest to our listeners? Mm, walk around Bethnal Green. Okay. Anywhere in particular? Bethnal Green hasn't really changed like Hackney has. Bethnal Green from uh, the edge of Victoria Park, walk up to uh, Cambridge Heath Road. Walk down Bethnal Green, Bethnal Green Road. Columbia Road is well-known, but just absorb Bethnal Green. There's some great architecture there. Uh, the old library is a fantastic building. And um, it's just old London that is still yeah. around. Mm. You know, it's it's such a, a great... I like that part. You know, uh, unfortunately, when you get down to Whitechapel now, it's changed such a lot, you don't know where you no. are. However, I would recommend anybody... We haven't got a whole food like Posh Stokey has. Stokey is kind of like the new name for Stoke New England. Mm. But go to Bethnal Green. Please do. And if you're in Bethnal Green Road, pop along to our good friend Z Polici. Polici on a on a, uh, don't is, go on a Tuesday. Which is not because, a greasy spoon. <laughs> yeah, because Nev's not there on a Tuesday. Don't go on a Tuesday. Go into Kelly's for pie and mash on a Tuesday. Any other day of the week, go and see Anna and Nev. Absolutely. Well, once again, it's been an absolute delight to have you on the show. Thank, Thank you ever you. so much for uh, for being here with us, uh, Wayne from Buckhurst Hill. You're welcome. And until next time, take it easy, and we'll see you soon. Thank you. Every week here at Your London Legacy, we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.